0: How do you keep walking if you experience overwhelming crisis and horror? Whether it's a pandemic or climate change, ravaging poverty or horrific abuse, crisis, something that we think of as exceptional, is frighteningly common. What do we do with these horrors when they happen to us or to the ones we love? What does it mean to be a change maker living in a time of crisis? In 2019, Australia faced the horror of uncontrollable, unprecedented bushfires. Almost everyone living on Australia's eastern seaboard lived through months of smoke. But for some, it was much worse. In fire-ravaged communities, for the people, for the land, for the animals, there was death and fear like never before. How does confronting crisis change how you walk forward? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Danielle Selemeyer. Danny is a scholar and a writer, a professor at the University of Sydney. She has deeply examined issues of torture and human rights, and she's later broadened her passion to multi-species justice. But there is no box for Danny. She's a woman who moves across places and roles, and in doing so, she reimagines her role and her place. She lived inside the 2019 bushfires on the south coast of New South Wales, on her farm with her partner and all of her animals. She writes about that experience in her exquisite book, Summertime. Today we discuss what shaped her and how she came to find herself able to speak about crisis. And we explore her story to look at the power of storytelling in changemaking. So... Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Welcome, Danny, to the Changemakers. We're so delighted
1: to have you on the program. Well, it's pretty exciting for me to be in conversation with you. I have listened to this program since the very first episode. And, and I think since you, this was an idea, this was a baby in your tummy waiting to be born, that podcasts was still not really on the scene yet, but you were thinking about how do we talk about the process of change? Yep. And that has been quite an inspirational question for me also. What's the process that we, that we adopt or transform to try and make change?
0: Excellent. Well, we are going to get into it. And I do remember your enthusiasm for the podcast. I remember you calling me, telling me how you used to listen to it on your bike rides to work, mm, which was very dangerous. The, very dangerous, <laughs> but also really nice. Luckily, luckily you survived. So, let's begin. We always begin in these conversations by, you know, letting our listeners understand a little bit about the kind of change maker that you are. You know, we all know that change can occur and in different ways, in different forms. But when you think of the difference you seek to make in the world, what causes you to do that? You know, what
1: do you seek to do and with what? So that's a big question. And I think the the primary medium that I use to bring about change is the word, uh, the spoken word, but also the written word, primarily the written word. So I'm a scholar, I'm a writer. And what I am seeking to do is have us, and the process of writing means that I'm doing this for myself all the time, but have the people who are engaging with what I write see the world otherwise than the way that they might see it in their inherited, taken for granted ways. Because we make sense of the world in ways that generate all sorts of violences and injustices and marginalisations and oppressions. And generally, we don't even see that we're doing that. Um, so I'm more interested in what we might call the everyday forms of violence and inequality and injustice than I am in the spectacular ones, because the spectacular ones are really easy to point out. The ones that are insidious, the ones that grind away and destroy lives, are the ones that are built into the system of how we live and how we make sense of the world. So. If there was one thing that I'm trying to do, it's to illuminate the way in which those taken for granted structures of thought and social organisation generate injustices and to do so in a way that allows people to see that it's made up, that, that the structures, the structures of gender or the structures of race or the structures of speciesism are the ways in which certain people with the power to organise the world, have organised the world, and that we, as participants in those structures, enact them in our everyday lives, but that it doesn't have to be that way, that in the same way structures have been constructed or constituted, they can be reconstituted, um, and to allow us to see that they always work for some more than they work for others, and to call that into question. Excellent
0: and you know what what I want to understand what we're going to explore through how you have sought to do those two things which is use the word as you as you put it and observe and help others observe things differently right seeing otherwise and 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 appreciate the everyday violences and see things differently that things are different We know that that uh, ju- that journey that you come to that sort of learning through a, through a process yourself, right? The, through your own process and journey of how you have come to this moment through through uh, the world of civil society, through the world of scholarship, through different places around the world as well. When you think of your the development of that way of being in the world, of, of how you are a change maker. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, some key moments of learning where that kind of making of change, that kind of being of change emerged for you, where you came to
1: realise that that was an important way to be. Mm. So I'm not going to answer that chronologically because the earliest one chronologically was not a realisation that I had. It was more the constitution of the person that I became. So I'll come back to that one. So probably the first one was studying feminism in philosophy and feminism, uh, post-structural feminism, a body of feminist work that was really emerging in the 1980s that was not so much, you know, some people think about feminism as the empowerment of women, and of course it is, but it was the feminism that was allowing us to see the way in which Uh, categories had been constituted. So starting with the way in which the category of gender gets constituted and certain characteristics go along with one gender and in a binary structure and other characteristics go along with another. So femininity is associated with emotion and masculinity is associated with rationality, for example. And then there's a whole lot of other dichotomies that follow from that body and mind, activity and passivity and so on. And seeing the way in which these basic what we what we assume were the building blocks of reality, that's the way that constructionism works, is like we don't see that they're constructed, they're just the way that the world works as far as we're concerned, really opened up a whole way of understanding the world for me, and and subsequently, I didn't work in feminist activism. I worked in race activism. I worked. I was the uh, speechwriter and principal policy advisor to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, Mick Dodson. But that way of seeing the world was all over my work. Uh, so even it was it was not so much about gender. I came to it through feminism, but it was about understanding uh, how structures of meaning and then structures of the distribution of privilege operate um, and systematically advantage and disadvantaged some people. So that was like huge eye opening for me. And then another one a little later in my life was I had done a, a degree in uh Social work and social policy. My first internship was in an Aboriginal community development project in Western Sydney. And the young Aboriginal woman that I was working with told me about her grandma having been taken away and discovering that she'd been taken away. And this was way before the Stolen Generation report. And, you know, as I'll say with my my third example, you know, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors. So questions of race and racial violence were, you know, built into my body. And yet I had grown up in this country and had not been part of those conversations, had not been exposed to that. And, you know, I learned. Uh, working with her and becoming friends with her, that, of course, these knowledges of what had happened to Indigenous peoples in this country circulated within those communities. But to confront my own ignorance and thereby my own participation in the perpetuation of that silencing was very truing for me. I think one of the disadvantages of growing up in a community where you feel that you were the victim of violence is that you can make the mistake of not recognising that you also perpetuate violence and injustice. And so that confrontation with my own implication was very important for me and, and and quite humbling isn't the right way, but it put me in my place yeah. and, and gave me and I hope that I bring this to my work now. It gave me a certain humility that even I try and bring that humility that even when you have come to recognise a form of injustice or marginalisation. You and everyone else are just somewhere on the spectrum of recognition of injustice. And there is always uh, shadowed out parts of the landscape of injustice that you don't yet see. And so I don't get too cocky about yeah. the ones that you do. So that was... That was yeah. important,
0: and just because you've experienced injustice doesn't mean you can't perpetrate it. That dichot, you know that that we can ha- that we actually have to hold both sides of that awareness in our body. That one doesn't let us off the hook. Is
1: Absolutely, we and make that mistake as a people. Yes, a lot, and also that not all forms of injustice are equivalent. No. Um, And, and, you know, I've seen this very much as I've moved from a focus on intra-human injustices to injustices and violence against the more-than-human world, that people can be profoundly committed to social justice in relation to, you know, a whole intersectionality of oppressed or marginalised peoples. And yet still systematically render invisible the violence that we, as a matter of course, perpetuate against the modern human world. Mm. Have I got time for one more? Yeah, no,
0: I want you to tell tell us more. Tell me more. Tell me where else you ground yourself, because I reckon it's going to be pretty important.
1: So the other one uh, seems really important to me because it was about the making of me rather than the remaking of me. Uh, So I mentioned before that I'm the child of... My parents were both children in the Shoah or the Holocaust... And uh, my father's family, who was just his, his father, his mother and him, his sister, had been murdered and the rest of the family had been murdered, came to Australia around 1950. Uh, my mother, who was hidden by a Catholic woman in Warsaw, was reunited with her parents after the war. And she came in the late 1950s, you know, around 1960. And so I was brought up very much in the context of the narratives of the Holocaust. But the most important one to me, I think, was that when I was four, I remember it very clearly, uh, my maternal grandmother, Nusha, who was visiting here, she lived in London, uh, she told me about being tortured. Uh, she was taken to a proto concentration camp in Warsaw called Paviak with my mother, who was then 18 months old. And she had uh, false papers. She had the birth certificate of a Catholic woman. And so she was uh, moving under an assumed identity, but she'd still been imprisoned uh, under the suspicion that she was a Jew. And she told me in quite graphic detail about being tortured so that she would confess that she was Jewish. And, you know, as as you can imagine, a four-year-old doesn't really have the boundaries to mediate that information or to make sense of it. It was more that I grew, you know, that, that became my bones and I grew around that. And often when I've... Uh, recounted that to, to friends or to people close to me, they've been horrified. And I, I suppose I was never horrified because I love my grandmother and I I understood that if she was telling me it was because of the difficulty that she had in speaking to adults about it or a certain intimacy that she felt. I've, I've never um, had any moral condemnation for her actions. And retrospectively, I think it it gave me an understanding that has readied me for the world that we're in in a way that is extremely helpful and i might explain that by you know a story that takes us a little bit further forth so as i'm sure we're going to talk about i live in the bush and we live in a in a fire affected area and so living through the the black summer fires was a world world-changing experience for me. And after I came out of it and was trying to navigate the world after that catastrophe, I went back to speak to my therapist who I'd been in therapy with in the past. And I said to her, I just didn't realise that the world could break. And she said to me, of course you did. And I thought, of course I did. And that 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 before the fact knowing that the world that we think is permanent, that is the ground under our feet, that is the air that we breathe, the condition of possibility of our lives, is impermanent and can break in ways that completely shatter everything that we understand about our lives. I think the impossibility of understanding that... Is one of the greatest impediments to our coming to terms in an embodied way, not just an abstract way, with what's happening in the world now. And I'm not saying that I don't face that challenge also, because it's it's a it's a range, it's a, a scale, it's not a you know you're on one side of the fence or the other. But I think because at that constitutional level, I have known that the world breaks. I have known that, that people, that, are, that a 12-year-old girl, my father's sister, gets murdered. It doesn't come as a violation of the law of the universe for me the way that I think it does for most of us who grow up on the ground of a certain stability. So what might look like... Of a foundational shattering, and I think it was, I think, has prepared me for a type of understanding that is, at this point of history, very important and very useful.
0: What I want to transition to, Jenny, is to is to talk about how you've taken. The learning of those three stories, and most importantly, that recognition that actually the world is simply uncertain, that we try to constitute ourselves with the values and practices and love that we can, but we do so in a space that's uncertain, knowing that it could be unsettled, and how you took that energy and have... Walked from the crisis of the 29 bushfires, from the black summer bushfires, and used your words to build an expression of that time and interpreting climate change going forward in your book, Summertime. So, everyone obviously, when they finish this podcast, will need to go get themselves a copy of this exquisite book. Like, it will make you, it'll bring tears to your eyes as well as. As, as bring an energy and perspective that you might not have had on the 29 fires. If you saw them from afar, if you coughed smoke in the city but were not connected to land, you might not have had the insight that Danny is able to express in this, and I really encourage you to read it. It's an exquisite book. But I want to go underneath it, in a sense, Danny. I want to ask you, you know, given what you've said, what were you trying to achieve in, in writing Summertime, what was your intention? What was your purpose?
1: Mm-hmm. I had many purposes, but I'll start with one, that for all of us, being present to the truth of what happened and what is happening and what will happen takes us beyond our emotional, intellectual and spiritual capacities, for the most part, there might be some people who are capable of being present to the type of unravelling that we will see and that we certainly saw manifest in the, um, the black summer fires. And so one way of thinking about what I was trying to do in the book was to put my arm um, around the shoulder of a reader and say, come come for a walk with me. Come for a walk with me and we will visit some of this territory of the mind and the emotions and the world together because none of us have the capacity to do it by ourselves. I don't have the capacity to do it by myself. And I found myself uh, in, you know, from September 2019 on when the fires started to burn to the north in this quite I think unusual position of being someone who is a philosopher who thinks about these issues who works on multi-species justice on climate on environment and living literally with the fire at the door and that gave me that that being placed at that nexus gave me a capacity to speak about it, uh, both with the, the large structural background, but also with the type of visceral immediacy that, you know, as you said, Amanda, people who are living in Australia had different levels of proximity. Pretty much everyone had some level of proximity, whether it was not being able to see three feet in front of your face because of the thickness of the smoke, or a place or people or animals that we are intimate with being threatened or destroyed or else living through it immediately. But there is a big difference between climate being, climate change being an abstract future and it being a concrete present. And we often speak about change being gradual, and I usually think that change is gradual, but In my experience, there was a a shift from one world to another for me in the confrontation with these fires when I realised in my body that this was actually happening here and happening now and that it wasn't someone else and it wasn't somewhere else and it wasn't at another time. All of those three moves, you know, that interpersonal move, the spatial move and the temporal move, that'll allow us to retain this illusion of immunity that so many of us do, with good reason, with good reason. I don't condemn people for that but that I had moved through that multi-dimensional veil into the reality left me with what felt like an ethical imperative to try and write in a way that would give more, more material reality to this for people because the fact that we can abstract the way that we do the fact that we can continue and we do continue to narrate the continuity of business as usual is, I think, along with all of the, you know, the structures of inequality and concentrated power, but at the level of of ideas and embodied ways of being, is the greatest impediment to our taking action. And, you know, we can speak about this further, but change, of course, is a multi-dimensional business. So there are those of us who have to be on the streets and there are those of us who have to be trying to get people to move their investments out of banks that, that are continuing to prop up the fossil fuel industry. So there are all of those material dimensions of change. But being a writer... Where I work, to go back to your initial question, is that how is it that we are making sense of and moving through the world in our understandings of ourselves that is impeding us living in the truth such that we can take the actions that we need to take? So, you know, a journalist asked me in an interview that I did about summertime do you think that people literally have to have the fire at their door for them to be able to understand what you now understand? And I said, summertime is my, is my way of saying, I hope not.
0: Yeah. Indeed, <laughs> you know, this practice of allowing people to bear witness to horror, you know, I mean, you've written about human rights crisis for much of much of your career before you've ventured into this space. And the book strikes me as an example of, of bearing intimate Witness of horror as a way of communicating it, but it's not in a it's not a typical book for an academic to write. You know, for which some of the listeners to this show we go, we makes it easier, right? It's it's a book full of stories. It's vivid, paints pictures. It's it, there is um, a literature in there, but it's it's gentle and and to to the side of of actually just trying to allow people to come in and walk with you as you bear witness to, to the horror. You know, you break the rules as an academic writing a book like this. What? How important was it to break rules like that, to be able to do, p- produce a piece like this? To what extent is the way in which you're using words Uh, and breaking of rules critical to how you're able to communicate in the way that
1: you believe we need to hear at this time? So I have two sorts of answers to that question. Firstly, the gravity and the intensity and the urgency of the moment, uh, I think, places an ethical imperative on anyone to question the rules within which they've been working. And it certainly does for me. And I think that the work that academics do, the, the traditional way in which we write, uh, is I, I now think about it as going to the mind gym. So, it, So my academic, more academic writing is the way of me honing my concepts. But let's be real, we speak to a very limited number of people when we write that way. And so to go back to your question about what I was trying to do, if I had written that way, it would have been impossible for me to have the book do the work that I wanted it to do, which was to speak to the people with whom I'm sharing this planet, not just the people with whom I share my workplace or my profession. But there's a a more... That's the kind of outside-in answer. There's an inside-out answer, which was I experienced what happened as all of me, and part of me is the philosopher, the person who thinks about this in terms of sets of ideas or perspectives that I have acquired through my my studies and my work. But I was also there feeling what it was like for the wind to come in every afternoon on these catastrophic fire days to a point where I came to hate the winds. I was there you know, the person who whose eyes fell on the body of someone who I had loved, a, you know, an, an, a non-human animal who had been burnt to death in the fire. So I was there with all of those sensual experiences, with my eyes and what I was smelling and what was moving through my body and so not to write with the the reality of all of the dimensions through which I was experiencing this would have been to shave off from the experience and just give this very one-dimensional narrative that would have also... It would have done violence to the experience, but it also would have done violence to me. You know, I wrote... I started writing Summertime... In the middle of the fires, I wrote the first, what became the part of the book on the 31st of December, one of the catastrophic fire days. I wrote another part on the 4th of January, another one of the catastrophic fire days. So this wasn't, uh, and this is tremendously important to me in the way that we write now, this was not some person who was sitting, observing the world as if I wasn't part of it. I was unravelling along with everything that was unravelling around me. And so to write synthetically like that, to write as someone who is part of this unfolding, unravelling, catastrophe, destabilisation, vulnerability, however we want to describe it, was both not to do violence, but also that type of representational strategy. And it wasn't a strategy, I just wrote what was. But to write as if we're not there, to write as if we're on the outside, is just to perpetuate the ways of making sense of the world that have got us into this problem. As if there's human beings, you know, made in the image of God or endowed with mind or reason or language or whatever story we perpetually tell ourselves that tells us that we are somehow floating above this vulnerable planet. Writing that way would have just reinforced that narrative. And it's not just that I didn't want to do it. I couldn't do it. But in doing it, I think
0: you are demonstrating, you, uh, and yours is not the only book that tells where academics have moved to this form of, of, of narrative. Um but in Australia it's a, it's, it's its I think it sits a little rare as as a different way of communicating and to me, it speaks to your purpose as a change maker communicating to a broad audience that you've used the storytelling device as the medium by which you're seeking to communicate. you're telling stories about what's happened, mm-hmm. as the way in which you're communicating other, other ideas additional ideas how important is it and not let's be clear not every person involved in change making does talk about stories too many people talk about facts and statistics and and use the idea that we're experts to be able to try and change people you haven't done that you've you've communicated a story out of your own experience and then sought to build on it how important is storytelling to
1: the your purpose in change making mm. well, I love the way that you asked me to narrate my development before through key moments and you mentioned that I worked in human rights for a long time before I shifted or expanded or opened the ethical boundaries that I worked within. So I worked at the Human Rights Commission as I mentioned and one of the pieces of work that I was part of was the report on bringing them home, the report on the forced removal of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families and I had worked on a bunch of reports on health, on water, on education, on land rights. That was the first report that we did that was primarily the first-person narrative of people who had experienced it. And I would say that the impact of that report so far outstripped anything else that we had ever done. And so I had a very first-hand experience of what it does to people to receive information in the form of stories. That we're, you know, we think that we have these giant brains, but we're human-sized beings. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that the information that we are most impacted by is information about one person at a time or one being at a time. And so I learnt from that. And I generally didn't bring it into my writing. I did a bit, um, but when it came to this, I saw that in order to ha- for the work to have the type of embodied transformative effect that I spoke about earlier, it needed to take this form. But at the same time, there are some disadvantages of storytelling, and as you know, as someone put it in a conversation that I was having, you know, you don't want to tell my fire story, Uh, just, you know, my survival story, because the the very quality of storytelling that makes it so powerful, this capacity to have an affective impact, to touch people's feelings, to move them in an embodied way, can also remove the narrative from the broader structures that perpetuate violence and injustice. And so the art of being able to tell a story in a way that captures that affective power, but at the same time gestures out to the larger systems and structures within which the individual stories unfold is a very difficult art And it's one that orients my work now. I I think a lot about how do you do what I call structural storytelling. And it it, it has to be some sort of dance, right? You have to move from one to the other. So, you know, there's a place in the book where I'm talking about lyrebirds. So before the fire, you know, we had two years of terrible drought and a lot of the lyrebirds were already in trouble And then about a third of the lyrebirds that live um, in our region were killed. Half the lyrebirds to the north were killed. And there's a chapter where I'm writing about the lyrebirds And I was thinking about, you know, writing is thinking. I was thinking about um, how when people tell stories about lyrebirds, one of the things that you often hear is that they imitate machinery, you know, that they imitate chainsaws. And as I was writing that, I was thinking, oh, you know, whenever I've heard that story before, I've just thought, oh, wow, isn't that amazing? And then when I reflected on it, I thought... If they're hearing if they're imitating chainsaws, it's because their forests are being cut down. And so telling that story about a liar bird imitating a chainsaw, and then reflecting in the text as I do of my own realization of what I had failed to see, that would be one example of what I mean by structural storytelling. So grounding it at this individual level that we can feel and capture but then at the same time allowing that to point to something that we might not otherwise see
0: and it picks up on one of the, the themes one of the last themes i want to ask you about which is this idea of the big and the small in the in the storytelling because you you compl- like so stories orient around a person mm-hmm. or people you know they've they're naturally small yet when we think of how we need you know often I think when I when I need to change the world, the concepts are, are big and impossible. It's it's climate change, inequality, racism, they're so they're so big. But the book speaks to the this balance, you know, structural storytelling, it speaks to this balance between holding grief for a singled treasured loved one with omnicide, the killing of so many species, so many living beings. I wonder if you could talk about the import talk a little bit more about how the power of this relationship between holding the big and small and how important it is for those to be intention when we're thinking about making change and communicating change like
1: you do in the book. We're finite beings, you know, our capacity to be present to the reality of suffering is is limited because our bodies can only hold so much and we absorb information in particular types of ways. And so the work, you know, as we were talking about before, the work of the small or the micro is the way for us to apprehend, encounter. And so that is absolutely critical. And yet what is happening is not... Firstly, it's not just about a few individuals that we would ever be capable of adding up. It's at a gargantuan scale that we need to know. We need to know that an estimate of three and a quarter billion animals were killed. But as soon as I say that, I'm sure that for listeners, for you, Amanda, for me, that figure just kind of bounces off your head. So why do we include that scale? We include that scale because somehow it gestures towards the gravity, the intensity, the scale of the problem and what is called for from us collectively. But it can't do the work of actually making it real for us. So I think the mistake that one might make is to think that you can do so, do both in a single gesture. You can't. They're different types of understanding, this abstract understanding and this very embodied concrete understanding. They're, they're like two notes in a tune. They're not a single note. and I think if you try and make them a single note, you're not going to do it. And at the same time, and this is something that we haven't touched upon, but you know we're talking about me as a change maker, but I'm a change maker within a community of change makers, and I think it's always really under, really critical to understand yourself that way. That in this book that I wrote, you know, that summertime, I'm doing a particular type of work with an understanding that I'm passing the baton or holding hands in a circle with people who are working at the other scales, who are working at the meso scale and at the macro scale and that we're we're speaking together and that we need to learn to speak together better, that we need to have this understanding of how together we form an ecology of activism. We're we're just speaking at the moment about the multiple scales that we need to operate on. We could also talk about the multiple dimensions that Mm. we need to operate on. So some of us need to be working at communities, some of us on economic systems, some of us on political systems, on legal systems. But seeing that both at the multiple scalar level and at the multiple dimensional level, we're part of this ecology of change. And understanding ourselves within that, I think, is also very liberating because it means that you're not trying to do the impossible, which is to do all of it. Mm-hmm You see yourself, you locate yourself within this ecology, and you think, okay, this is the part I'm going to do, and I'm going to try and do it really well. But I'm also going to be mindful. of the aperture or the the contact point between me and some other type of system. And a lot of that happens outside the book, right? A lot of that then happens in the conversations that you have with other people who are working at other systemic levels and you start to work out how do our different pieces fit together to create a more robust ecology. Yeah.
0: In a sense, creating an ecology to save the ecology, you know, it feels very apt as a as a as a methodology, um, and you know, in, very consistent with a whole bunch of a sort of a regular conversation that I often bring up on on the show about. Forms of people power, forms of the way in which we know there is no silver bullet. There is no, the, the takeaway from this conversation isn't everyone should go and get their words on. Everyone needs to write a book about about um, a, a horrible, you know, a horror experience to, to create witness. It's, look inside yourself and the series of experiences you've had throughout your life, identify your great strengths to be able to know how best you can walk forward
1: with others to to make change. Absolutely. And and Amanda, I've often thought about you in relation to this. So, you know, there are times where I've thought, wow, I should be doing organising. And then I think, you know, Amanda is is just amazing at organising. I'm not amazing at organising. And if I go out and train myself to be an organiser, then I'm not doing what it is that I have been blessed with the ability to do. And, you know, people often say to me, you know, when you talk about climate, I'm sure this happens, lots of listeners will know this. People say, well, you know, what should I do? And have lots of answers to that question. But one of them is, what is it that you do? What is it that you love doing? What is it that you do well, do that in relation to climate? And that might take a little bit of working out for some people, but I, you know, I I'm very confident that everybody, you know, teacher, doctor, banker, you know, whatever, can find some way that they bring that particular perspective, set of affordances, capacities, you know, capital that they have. Um, I don't mean economic capital; I mean social capital, their networks, etc., that they can bring. That to this, and that's how we form a robust ecology. Not through everybody. You're absolutely right. Not through everybody going. Okay, well, that's what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. We've got to look underneath mm. to find the answer. Well, Danny, this has been a fantastic conversation, and even though you your witness of such a horrendous time, and recognition that we're still in for more of it is you know, sobering, I think it's also there is a sense of how we can walk through, forward through this that you guide us through with this book. So wishing you the best and thank you for coming. Thank you so much for the conversation. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Zander Shivanoviv. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organizing school if you wanna take a deeper dive into the art of change-making.